Good morning, Graham Church. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I wish you a blessed new year. Thank you. And um, I often think of uh, the statement, regardless of a person's past, his or her future is spotless. Amen? Amen. And so this morning, we're going to begin the new year as we go into communion with the subject of new beginnings. And so I invite you to take the Word of God and turn with me to a familiar passage, John chapter 3. This morning as I was leaving Grand Rapids, I drove past a restaurant that is called New Beginnings. You may or may not be familiar with the fact that it's a chain of restaurants that um, is staffed by ex-prisoners who have uh, come to Christ, who are in continuing Bible study, and now are giving this job, given these jobs in the New Beginnings restaurants uh, to work as they're uh, working towards integration back in, in the society. But New Beginnings is much more than just a theme of a West Michigan restaurant. It's really uh, the idea of God describing what he will do with the old creation and what he currently is doing with the lives of individuals. Scripture is full of this thought about new things and new beginnings. Isaiah 43. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. And you know I trust 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. And some paraphrases emphasize that the old is passing and the new is coming. 1 Peter 1.3 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is great mercy. He has given us new birth unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And then uh, I often emphasize the perpetual newness or literally freshness of what every day is going to be like in heaven when, and Jesus says, I am making everything new, perpetually fresh and new, the language would, would indicate. So we've just celebrated the blessing of the incarnation and the new thing that God did when the fullness of time was come. God sent forth his son made of a woman to redeem us. And um, the idea that God himself is calling his son, the Lord Jesus, Emmanuel, God is with us. I admit I'm a fan of the older movie series Rocky, the Sylvester Stallone boxing movies, and I think it's the second movie in which um, the champ Rocky and re reunites with Apollo Creed, and um, they decide that they're going to have a little match between themselves to try to definitively decide who is the best. And so uh, Rocky and Apollo are kind of limping into the ring, and uh, Rocky says, too bad we can't be born again. And I'm jumping up in front of the TV set saying, but you can! Sly, Apollo, you could be born again. 
I want us in John chapter 3 to see uh, at the beginning of this new year uh, just great clarity, Lord willing, on what is the new birth. What happens when Nicodemus comes to Jesus? And Jesus tries to explain the mystery of being born again, gives some further instructions. And then as we prepare to go to communion, some final assurances and, and warnings from the Lord Jesus in John chapter 3. Well, let me read John 3, verses 1 through 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now you know that Nicodemus was an a important religious leader. He's not just a Pharisee, but he's the head of one of the sects of the Pharisees. And we usually speculate that he came to Jesus by night because maybe he, being a highly educated religious Hebrew leader, was a bit embarrassed to come to this Galilean peasant, Jesus, who was a traveling rabbi, literally teacher. I wonder maybe if Nicodemus's schedule was just so busy that this was the only opportunity he had to uh, meet with the Lord Jesus. And you've heard me sillily refer to this as the first episode of Nick at Night. And here's Nicodemus who then wants to come to Jesus and talk about religion. He had been seeing and hearing what Jesus was doing. The healings. The claim to be from God and to be God. And he recognized that the signs were fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that the Messiah from God would cause the deaf to hear, the lame to leap, the blind to see. And so he comes and, and he wants to talk about this religious stuff that Jesus is doing. A few months ago, I told you years ago, I did some outdoor evangelistic meetings in the country of Dominica, and the power went out, and so we were in the middle of pure darkness. And uh, on the spur of the moment, God just moved me to change my sermon, and I couldn't see notes anyway, to preach on a man who came to Jesus by night. And Jesus didn't talk about religion, he talked about relationships. I found out later after that night that the local priest of the local Dominican religion had told the people, don't go to those meetings, don't go to those Bible meetings. But when everything got dark, they crept out of their houses and they, they knew they wouldn't be seen. They, there were all kinds of people out there in the jungle standing, listening to, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. So... Here's a quote for you to think on, realizing that Nicodemus had seen these things that Jesus had done. In the mind of Nicodemus, the miracles may well have been indications of the speedy coming 
of the kingdom of God in a political sense. But Jesus introduced an entirely different concept to the kingdom with the sign pointing to a spiritual reign of God. Now you've been told this before, but all the Jews thought throughout the Old Testament that part of what Messiah was going to do was restore Israel to prominence. And it would be an overthrow of dictators like Rome and an end to poverty. But when Jesus comes and begins to teach, he talks about the kingdom of God is individual. And it's in you. And the essence is not politics or prosperity, but rather a spiritual reign of God in your heart. And here Jesus makes a very clear command, the famous verse of John 3, 3, I'm telling you, you must be born again. Uh, he says it with real earnestness. Uh, the original language would probably say something like, um, I'm telling you with all the enthusiasm that I could, you must, must be born again. And he says, here's the truth, Nicodemus. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Again, down in verse 7, we will read, he says, you must be born again. Now, it's interesting, some translations translate the familiar term born again as born from above. That's a legitimate translation. Because born from above points to the source of the new birth. It comes from God. Not by our efforts or our overthrowing the evil, but from God. It means that we're born in a new way. Teaching us that being converted, saved, becoming a Christian, a believer, it's not the result of the old way. Nicodemus, I say to you, with all the emphasis I can muster, you must be born again. Now, we call this the doctrine of regeneration. God gave us life in the Garden of Eden through Grandpa Adam and Grandma Eve, but that life was lost. We've been born again to eternal life through salvation. Peter says, for you have been born again, not of perishable, that is corruptible or temporary seed, but of the imperishable, perishable, that which will never pass away, through the living and enduring word of God. God. And here's kind of one of the key thoughts of the little book of 1 John. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. This is a, a promise that devout Jews latched onto from Ezekiel. When the Spirit of God said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What a drudgery dead religion must be. How fruitless and futile is just trying to be good or, or keep laws 
or somehow to work your way to God. And Ezekiel says, listen, God's going to give a new heart. He's going to take a heart of stone and it's going to be a living heart. And I will put my spirit within you, myself. Well, Nicodemus, who is a master of religion, must have been appalled and mystified at the language which Jesus is stressing. You must be born again. And so we get some sense of Nicodemus's perplexity here in verses 4 through 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Again, if we were there, we would hear Nicodemus saying, how, how, how is this possible? How can this be? Jesus answered him, Are you not a t teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things. So Nicodemus has this to commend himself. He is openly perplexed and he admits it. Admitting the fact that we need wisdom, that we don't naturally have it, Bowing ourselves before God is the beginning of wisdom. Pride is the opposite of that. Now Nicodemus is going to go on to show that he later became a follower of Jesus. As at the death of Christ, he does something that potentially is very unpopular for a Jewish Pharisee. He helps take care of the body of Christ and stand up and speak out for Christ. But at this point, he is a bit mystified. And so Jesus is going to answer, and he's going to give an illustration. Nicodemus, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Oh, there's, there, there's a new concept, two aspects to birth. And then he illustrates this point by saying flesh gives birth to flesh, and the Spirit gives birth to spirit. Now, we're going to do just a little bit of theology for a minute. Those of you that don't like it, you can take a four-minute nap. But let's just delve into some options here. Uh, lots of different views on what it means to be born of water and then to be born of the spirit. Well, John the Baptist had been out preaching repentance and doing water baptism to prepare Israel that God was in their midst and that the kingdom of God was here. And so there was what was called a baptism of repentance. And so many people were coming out of Jerusalem. John at one point says, seems like the whole city was coming out to John to be baptized.
baptized. It was a preparation for the Messiah, for John had been called the forerunner, and every king in the ancient world had a forerunner, an announcer, that would come and say, the king is coming. I'm not sure this is what uh, the Lord Jesus is referring to, though. Some people have taught that uh, to be born of water means water baptism. There are sections of the Christian church, for example, the disciples of Christ, who are sincere people, but I think flirt with what we call baptismal regeneration. Meaning that uh, faith in Christ does save you, it's Christ, but baptism is a part of that. Now, let's be very clear. In the New Testament, following the example of Jesus in water baptism after an individual or a family believed came very close together and was very important. It was a significant statement that we are now these new followers of the way. We are Christians. When Paul gives the message to the Philippian jailer in answer to the question, what must we do to be saved? He says simply, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then we see the example of the Philippian jailer and his family who must have been old enough to understand the gospel. They all believed and all were baptized. Mark 16 says, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. I had a student say to me, you see, Professor Lacey, there's baptism as necessary for salvation. I said, let's look at the verse. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall not be saved. Baptism was and should still be a very important link to our testimony that spiritually we have died with Christ and we have risen with Him to newness of life. In many countries today, unlike America, but in India, Pakistan, other places, it is not the point of professing faith that people really believe you're a Christian or persecution begins, but at the point of baptism. But let me be clear, water baptism does not save. Jesus is not teaching here that you get born again by being baptized in water and then believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. No, we are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. Now, probably the view that most of us would endorse is that when Jesus talks about two births, one by water and one by the Spirit, the first birth is referring to physical birth. Because we know literally, when we came into the world, we as babies in the womb were encased in the embryo in water. And when birth's about to take place, we speak of the mother's water has, has burst. And I think... This is the proper view because Jesus goes on to say that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit, referring to first we have physical birth, but that's not enough. Nicodemus, you've got to have physical birth and you must be born by the spirit. Sometimes the Bible refers to scriptures as the water of the word and certainly the Bible teaches that it's uh, by the Word of God that we come to eternal life. Some would translate uh, this by 
water, even the Spirit. Well, uh, those of you that like to debate and like to get into discussion, this is a, a great, uh, great section to do that. But I, I really think Jesus is making the point that we need more than human birth. Does that make sense? We need more than physical birth. One truth is clear. The new birth is from God through the Spirit. So the Spirit of God does always use the Word of God to bring eternal life. Here's John 6, 63. The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. Nicodemus, you must be born again. In a couple of churches I had the privilege of serving, they were by really big highways, like out by like 69. And um, we had the privilege of helping the church construct uh, an appropriate, nice-looking sign in which we put Scripture on it. And every week, we'd sometimes put some witty, fun things, but often we'd put the Word of God. And I remember putting up one time, if you are born only once, you will die twice. If you are born twice, you may die only once. Or that, That's too much for people to drive by at 70. But I say, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Here's the truth of John chapter 3. Now, Jesus attempts to explain to Nicodemus by the example of the, the wind. The wind comes and it blows where it will. You, you certainly can't predict it with detail, but you certainly can see the results. I remember the story of a little girl was taken to see a site in Oklahoma that had a terrible tornado. And as a result of the tornado, houses were strewn everywhere in wreckage, and she looked up with wide eyes, a tomato did all this? Jesus expresses the fact that the new birth is sometimes mysterious. If we had the time and the small group times to find out how all of us came to Christ, we'd find out we probably came different ways. Some of you were raised in homes and you heard the loving gospel and you grew up believing. Now at some point in your little heart there was repentance and there was new birth, but you probably can't put your finger on it. Others have a conversion story that's very dramatic and time-centered. Others look back and say, well, the word of God, it was, it was sown like seed in my life, and, and years later it was watered, and, and then it broke into fruition. The new birth is mysterious. Don't make people guilty if they can't give you a time or a place. But if that is your experience, uh, you're blessed in some ways. The issue is not that you can remember or point to an emotional event, but the issue is, are you believing on Jesus? And Jesus says, if that happens, there'll be results. You don't see the wind, but you see the results of the wind. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Well, Nicodemus, uh, he's, he's just got to be further perplexed 
But the Lord Jesus Christ is not going to just leave it there. In his witnessing, Christ is not only going to teach the way. He's going to explain, you've got to act on this. And there are consequences if you do not. Just one chapter later, he's with a woman at a well. And what a contrast between the woman from Samarita at the well to Nicodemus in Jerusalem. Nick is a religious dude, upright, maybe uptight. The woman at the well has been through a string of men. And she's known in her immorality in the village. But they both later on show their sincere devotion to Christ. As the woman would even go into the village and say, Come with me, come see a man who told me everything. Is this not the Messiah? And Nicodemus, later on at the risk of his reputation, standing up for Jesus. Well, I read verse 10 through 14. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly. Uh, that could be translated, surely, surely, or verily, verily. I say to you, we speak what we know, we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimonies. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the Son of Man, now here comes the strange illustration, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So, Jesus goes back to an experience of Israel in the wilderness when they were going to die because of sin. And God did something very strange as a solution for the sin. Here's a quote from Bible scholar Everett Harrison. The allusion is to the cross. As men afflicted with the bite of the deadly serpent looked with expectancy and hope toward that which represented the reptile that had set the virus of death flowing in their veins, so sinners must look in faith to Christ, their substitute, who came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Out in the wilderness, the people began to grumble against God and to grumble against Moses. God sent fiery serpents to bite the people, to chastise them, to get their attention back to not away from their complaining, but to God. And when the fiery serpents bit and injected the poison in the disobedient Israelites, they were doomed to die. But God said, Moses, I want you to make a metal, a bronze replica of the serpent of all things that has bit the people to remind them of sin. And instruct them to look and believe 
that there's a solution for that sin. There is release from the poison. And if they look and believe, they will be saved. And so here's the Lord Jesus who loved and used the Old Testament, the Scriptures, all the time, making this strange reference to looking and believing and being delivered from the consequences of sin to life. This brings us up to the much-loved verse of John 3.16. You've heard me put it this way, for God, the greatest giver, so loved the greatest love, the world the greatest group, that he gave his one and only son the greatest gift that whoever believes in him, the greatest invitation, followed by the greatest promise, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Hear the gospel in, in, a, in a nutshell. Um, quite a few times I've had the privilege of talking to somebody about Jesus, and I'm, I'm just like everybody else. I'm not very good at saying, can I talk to you about Jesus, or have you ever been saved? What has often worked for me is I simply say, could I give you a little booklet that uh, in 10 minutes you can read and it'll explain what the Bible's all about? And on several occasions, I've had people say, well, would you tell me about it? So we'll sit down and read it, and then we'll come halfway through the booklet to John 3.16, For God so loved the world. And, and the guy will say, my grandmother used to say that to me. I heard Billy Graham on TV say that. I have a neighbor that's been talking to me about that, For God so loved the world. And so there's the whole gospel. There's the good news in a nutshell. And its context is Jesus talking to Nicodemus about you must be born again. Well, the Lord Jesus closes this section with final assurances and warnings. Verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that he may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Why is it that often people will not come to the cross? The simple answer is sin. Why do we crouch away times in the darkness rather than walk openly in the light? because of our disobedience. And 1 John 1, 5 says, this is the message that we have from Him. God is light. And if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship, one with another. And then the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. It literally could read, and the blood of Christ continues to cleanse us from all sin. Why Christ? 
Not that he would condemn the world, but that he would redeem the world. Here's that wonderful word, redemption. It's like Hosea going back and buying his wife who had been unfaithful to him. He redeems her, not to make her his slave, but to set her free and to restore her to the joys of familyhood. And Jesus talks to Nicodemus about the certainties, the sureties of redemption, that, that if you believe, there is no condemnation. Makes us think of that great statement of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. And our Lord is very clear to not be afraid to say that light is rejected because of evil, but truth is made plain by living in the light of God. So that, that's the end of the interview, the witnessing session between the Lord Jesus and Nicodemus. Now, in John chapter 3 and the rest of the chapter, um, the Holy Spirit of God moved the Apostle John to write more accounts of about how John the Baptist exalts the Lord Jesus. But there's a summary statement of all the above at the end of this chapter. It's the famous John 3.36, in which with great clarity we read, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Years ago, a wonderful man of God of the 20th century named A.W. Tozer wrote a little booklet called The New Birth, A Major Miracle. Every time someone is redeemed and becomes a follower of Christ, child, aged person, good person, bad person, it's a major miracle. It's like God parting the Red Sea. And God speaking in worlds come into being. Regeneration, being born again, salvation, it's a major miracle. It comes by the Spirit of God. As we have physical birth, ah, but not enough. Then we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we are saved. This really is the essence of what the Apostle Paul wanted Christians to remember. In the New Testament, the uh, Christians started out by having the Lord's Supper every day. They were all meeting together in Jerusalem. Thousands had been saved, and they're sharing with one another. And then eventually they moved to weekly on the Lord's Day. And so many of our brothers and sisters in different denominations observe communion or the Lord's Supper every week. But 1 Corinthians 11 says, this is something that you ought to do as often as you do. In other words, as you deem it appropriate, that it not become just mere repetition, but rather it become a profitable reminder. Remember that the night in which the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. 
And he ate and said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This blood, he said, is my covenant, my agreement, my promise of forgiveness of sins. And often, as often as you drink it, drink it. Drink it in remembrance of me. Because in Christ, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Now, you know that um, as time went on, sometimes the real meaning of the Lord's Supper got corrupted and some people were just coming to get food because there was wine in that day. Some people were coming just to, to, to get the wine. And Paul says, listen, this is for those who, who know the Lord Jesus and this is for those who are sincere in following the Lord Jesus. Let's bow our hearts together before the Lord as the worship team prepares to come. And let's quiet our hearts before the Lord to be thankful for the privilege of being born again. And we thank you, Lord, for making clear to us what it is and what it's not to be born again. Father, in this quiet moment, we invite your Holy Spirit to remind us of things that we need to confess and receive forgiveness for. And I would encourage you to take this next minute and ask the Holy Spirit of God to, to reveal and then to forgive that which he may call to your attention. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. And he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Proverbs says, whoever covers their sin shall not prosper, but who confesses and forsakes it shall have mercy. And so, Lord, thank you for the example of clear teaching from our Lord Jesus on the new birth. Help us to live in the light of it, and we thank you in Christ Jesus' name, amen.